Welcome to Wind Up Weekly. I'm Matthew Gorn. And I'm Katie Canfield. And we're here to share the week's news and wine. This week on Wind Up Weekly. Last week saw the launch of Batonage Connect, the virtual edition of the Women in Wine Forum. Airlines resume flights, but mostly without alcohol. Threat of tariffs loom again. And as ever, our wine of the week. Batonage Connect happened last week, and since I'm so involved in it, decided to include it in our Week in Wine versus just another headline. And it was, in my own humble opinion, a great success. We received some very positive feedback. Uh, There were three sessions to kick off the webinar series. We had our keynote by Food & Wine Senior Food Editor Mary Frances Heck and acclaimed chef Tracy Desjardins to kick it off. And then we had two panel sessions, one on vineyard workers, what's really going on, led by Elaine Chacon-Brown, and then stirring it up, color, wine, and feminism, led by moderator Julia Coney. And overall, though it was a virtual event, we were still able to connect with the community, I thought, quite well through the chat section of the Zoom platform, as well as through the Q&A. We're also going to be sending recordings of the videos and hopefully connecting some of the attendees with panelists. Anybody who wants to do any follow-up Batonage Forum will be there to help. So, you know, we couldn't do an in-person event, but despite it all, I think there was a quite a bit of connection and a lot of positivity about charting a new path forward. And this all kind of led into Juneteenth, which is, of course, the celebration of the anniversary of the end of slavery in the United States. And I saw many of the women that participated at Batonage Forum participate in an event called the Juneteenth Saber Celebration. The women behind it uh, included Roxy Eve Narvaez, Lindsay Williams, Dr. Akela Kaday, Julia Coney, Siobhan Ball, Uh, Alicia Sommer, and some of the 2019 Batonage Forum scholars. So it was a great way to round out the week and a lot of passionate women speaking about promoting the Black community, promoting wine. So I'm looking forward to a few weeks ahead of uh, Batonage Connect of the webinar series and the other initiatives that might come from it. Well, this is the first virtual event I've attended. I've um, seen webinars, individual webinars, but this is the first where it's actually been a series. And I think it's worked really well. And although there is the disadvantage of people not being there in person and networking in person, I think it's really opened it up to an even broader community than it had before. And it seemed to work very successfully. And there are attendees from Canada, Italy, the UK and Australia, I think. So really global. So I think a lot of um, positive things to take forward from that. On a more individual note, this week I took an exam, the Wine Scholar Guild Bordeaux Masters exam. So when the MW exam was cancelled, which was supposed to happen a couple of weeks ago, I thought I might as well study something. Uh, So I signed up for this uh, Bordeaux Masters class. It's online again, all webinars pre-recorded, and I learned a lot about Bordeaux. Because there's 15 different webinars, it's really in-depth. And then I finally took the exam on Monday because there's been so much demand for these exams. I had to wait about eight weeks before I could actually take it. And so I'd kind of forgotten a bit of the vital information, I have to admit. Um, Hopefully I did okay. I'll find out in another three to four weeks if I passed. Uh, But whether I passed or not, I feel much more knowledgeable about Bordeaux, which is such an important region and one that I neglect and don't drink that often, I have to admit. 
Well, I have to say you're still miles ahead of me. I think I started the Italian Wine Scholar program well before you did, and I'm still about mm, two or three webinars in. So I'm definitely going to have to uh, scale it up a little bit in my dedication to that topic, because Italy is another country where there is so much to know. And as you say, uh, these, you know, wine courses online are becoming increasingly popular. So I'm going to have to get my name in to get an exam on the books. Um, And then just one other story that we wanted to mention, which kind of connects to what Katie was talking about with the Juneteenth celebrations. And this is um, an article which W. Blake Gray posted on Twitter and on his website, an interview with uh, four employees of Gallo who are all black. And we mentioned this because a couple of weeks ago we mentioned uh, W. Blake Gray jokes on Twitter about Gallo saying they support Black Lives Matter and and he's like, well, where are all the black employees? They did actually get back to him and put it in in connection with four employees from across the country who uh, work for Gallo and he um, posted the interview in full and it's actually really interesting and worth reading. Gallo come out of this quite well as uh, being very positive in supporting their black employees. They talk about how when they're all sales reps and they talk about how when when they go go into the market, there can be some prejudice against them and some suspicion and skepticism from an industry which can be very conservative and Gallo support them with the the Gallo African-American network. So it's good to see that Gallo have been working on this without boasting about it. Yes, Blake's comment on Twitter was a bit tongue-in-cheek about hoping to have an interview with a black wine salesperson or sales director from Gallo. So I think he was quite surprised when he actually received a response and an email follow-up that he sent to a PR executive at Gallo. And one of the conclusions that he drew from his interviews with these four employees and his general knowledge of Gallo is that employees are generally quite happy at Gallo. And he says he's never heard of a Gallo employee speak poorly of the company. So so despite being one of the largest wine companies in the world, maybe they really are doing something right. The big boys aren't always the bad boys. And now on with the news. <laughs> As the global economy slowly opens up, airlines are beginning to resume service again. However, flying isn't going to be normal like before, as many airlines won't be serving alcohol or even food in some instances. Virgin Atlantic are reopening five of their international routes, and no alcohol will be served, nor will passengers be allowed to bring their own alcoholic drinks on board. Instead, passengers will be given food in a controlled environment and will have to wear masks throughout the flight, as well as being provided with their own PPE kits and hand sanitizer. Those flying with EasyJet, which is never the most pleasant experience anyway, are limited to a glass of water, with no food being provided at all. KLM will serve prepackaged hot food on long-distance flights, but only provided when the passengers get on the plane, and passengers can still order water and soft drinks. Cantas, the Australian airline, have suspended sales of alcohol and won't be serving food on domestic flights. However, not all airlines have completely suspended sales of alcohol and service of food on their flights. British Airways are allowing passengers to pre-order food and drinks, including alcoholic beverages, and pick them up as they board, although this option won't be available for short budget flights. Delta Airlines will also allow the sale of food and drink on their international flights, but not on domestic, and likewise with American Airlines. When will we feel comfortable flying again? Well, not very soon, if it means I can't have a bottle of wine or at least a little gin and tonic to keep me going. I do wonder, especially for, you know, business class and first class passengers, how long this is really going to fly. I know that 
these you know ticket costs are likely the same and really what those people pay for when they get those uh, upper class tickets is you know more leg room for sure but it's also the dining experience I you know they have champagne to start complimentary beverages throughout flight and if that's not adding value to their ticket then I don't know what is well personally I wouldn't worry about the first class travelers they usually get what they want um, I think um, they're, they're, they're the ones most likely get the alcohol for all the reasons that you mentioned. It's more us uh, mere plebs, what we're going to get, because we don't get very good wine in the first place anyway. Uh, These are temporary measures, so we'll see how they adapt because they're just getting back up in the air. So maybe they'll change these policies as they get more used to flying again. And um, international flights seem to be more um, alcohol tolerant, as it were. Well, and it is funny what, you know, what are they trying to achieve by preventing people from drinking on the flights? Are they trying to prevent people from using the restroom more often? In which case they probably won't succeed because people will just drink heavily before boarding the plane and then probably have to use the restroom even more. So maybe they'll soon find uh, the flaws in their plan. Right, and when you're on a plane, especially an international plane, it's really important to walk around and keep your body moving with alcohol or without alcohol. So I'm not really sure it'll stop people walking up and down the aisles. So it's going to be interesting to see what people's experiences of flying are. And maybe at some point we'll fly back to Europe. I'd certainly like to. Spending 12 hours wearing a mask without anything to drink or eat doesn't sound much fun. Well, unfortunately, our ticket that we currently hold is with the Virgin Atlantic, so... As long as they're holding out on us, I don't know how soon we're going to get to the UK. One thing we haven't been talking about over the last three months is tariffs. Well, the topic is back. This week, the U.S. walked out of global talks over digital taxes involving over 140 countries. France, which has imposed a 3% levy on companies such as Google, Facebook, and Amazon, said that they were just centimeters from reaching a deal and that the withdrawal from the talks by the U.S. was a provocation. France has suspended its levy while the talks were underway, but promised that they would resume the taxes in January, whether a deal had been reached or not. In turn, Trump has threatened to impose retaliatory tariffs on European goods such as cars and wine, with the threat even of 100% tariffs on famous regions like Champagne. This follows the 25% tariffs which were imposed on some European wines at the end of last year following the dispute over Airbus, a dispute which has nothing to do with wine but which had affected the wine industry badly in both Europe and the U.S. The U.S. feel that any taxes on digital companies will unfairly impact U.S. companies, which is why they oppose their introduction and threaten to retaliate with taxes on European goods. As we move out of a pandemic which is causing a massive economic recession, we're also faced with the real possibility of a trade war. Back at the end of the year, it felt like the pod talked about nothing but tariffs. It was such a dominant issue. And then it kind of disappeared a little bit as these negotiations went underway. And also we've been distracted by other news. But this threat is back. And with someone like Trump in charge of the US government, it's very unpredictable what's going to happen next. And that he could really impose some extreme measures which the EU will have to respond to. And so here we are in uncertain times economically with an unpredictable U.S. president, the likelihood of a prolonged recession, and all this could be exacerbated by a trade war. 
Yes, difficult, especially for producers, importers, distributors, and retailers uh, to function in an environment such as this. I mean, they're already combating, you know, reopening after COVID-19 and the resurgence of the virus. So add tariffs on top of it, and it looks like a pretty dismal 2020 and 2021. It does seem incredible that in the midst of this pandemic and a clear recession ahead of us that politicians arguing about trade tariffs. It seems like they should be doing positive things, not negative. And now for our wine of the week, which is Matthew. Well, this week we're going to Greece and a very unusual and interesting wine. It's by Theopetra Estate, which was established in 1996. And it's from the Meteora uh, PGI, which is in Thessaly, which is central Greece, and the grape variety is Limniona, which is a variety which was pretty much extinct, but was resurrected um, around the 1990s when um, another producer realised that it was a unique variety that that was unlike anything else and had it tested to see if it was French or if it came from somewhere else, but it's definitely indigenous and uh, native to the region. And this particular producer, Theopetra Estate, is based in an old vineyard which was really run down uh, just and, and used to be run by monks at the bottom of uh, the mountains in that region. So it really is um, a ex- great example of a producer looking to the past with this unusual grape variety and resurrecting it, and also with the old vineyard as well, to create a new future for Greek wine, because Greek wine has had a troubled history. But it's definitely uh, back on the up, I think, and, and definitely worth investigating. And um, there are more plantings of the variety now. I think there's up to 15 hectares in Greece which is obviously a very small amount. But it's definitely a variety which um, I would encourage Greek winemakers to work with more because the wine, this wine, is absolutely fantastic. And a really good example, I think, of how Greek wines can be confused for Italian wines. Because this, for me, was quite reminiscent of Nebbiolo. Yes, exactly. It had that uh, very high acidity, lots of freshness. Uh, We had it with uh, barbecue, so we barbecued some sausages. But what I thought this wine really went well with was the grilled halloumi cheese that we had as a little appetizer, and it was a match made in heaven. Yeah, it's funny, that, isn't it, how Greek wine would go well with Greek food? Mm. Um, It's like they'd thought about it before. But um, for me, the similarities with Nebbiolo is it's that high tannin, but really high acid as well. Uh, slightly pale coloured as, as well, red fruits and that tar, leather texture to it. And just really concentrated. I think this is a fantastic wine. Um, proof that Greece can make really great wine, which I don't think it has uh, the full credit for. And what is the price on the wine? I think it's $35, hmm. which, you know, it's a little pricey, but compared to what you'd be getting... Um, in Italy, from uh, with Nebbiolo, I think it's relatively good value, uh, especially as it's a really good wine. And it's from 2015 as well, so a little bit of maturity to it. I think this is a wine that could age for another five to seven years for sure. And it's exciting to see that this that Greece is kind of revisiting its past to create a very vibrant future. Cheers to that. So that's it for Wind Up Weekly this week. I'm Katie Canfield. I'm Matthew Gorn. Join us next week for another wind-up. And in the meantime, we ask that you please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. Uh, That helps other listeners searching for the news in wine to find us. Especially if the reviews are positive. That's right. See you next week. Cheerio! Cheerio!